0: Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Well, good morning, Community Christian Church. How's everybody doing? Good. Hopefully that uh, performance by our children, that worship set with them, uh, gave you a little shot of energy. If you were maybe dragging in this Sunday morning, maybe you, uh, that woke you up a little bit. Uh, I know I'm feeling pretty pumped. Listen, I'm just so honored to be able to share with you on this very special Palm Sunday. And uh, you know, it's not lost on me that if you've been around church, you've been a believer for some time, Palm Sunday comes every year. And uh, we tend to read the same scripture and it's easy to get into routine of, oh, Palm Sunday, I kind of know. I can tune out. Listen, can I just challenge you today that God's word, it's living, it's active, and we are going to get a special word from the Lord this morning. So if we can just lean in together on that. Uh, If I have not gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Pastor Tyler. I oversee our children, youth, young adult with an amazing staff, and it is an honor to serve this house and to serve God alongside of you. I believe God is absolutely on the move, like Sean said in that video announcement. I have a question. How many of you have, maybe in an effort towards fitness or losing weight or whatever, have tried some very sketchy things? You're, how many of you have looked for the magic bullet? Just like, if I could just take this pill, if I could just drink this, okay. So I'm not alone then when I have uh, you know, attempted some of the weirder things. You know how metabolism slows down? It's a heck of a thing. So. I want to highlight something that just seemed to make its way into society that everybody at the time thought was the magic bullet. And the reason I bring this up, because I was maybe seven, eight, maybe nine years old, I was helping, me and my brothers were helping my grandparents clean out my great-grandmother's basement of her condo, and we found this particular piece of fitness equipment. Let's see it. (laughs) Does anybody remember the Vitamaster? Come on. Be honest. Who had a Vitamaster? Yes, thank you. All right. Listen, so I had the distinct pleasure of getting to try said mechanism, but here's what it is. Invented in like the late 1800s in a very like prototype beta way, it kind of made its way into American culture through the early 1900s, even into like 60s, early 70s. And the idea was that you could fire up this motor, strap a belt around you, lean into it, and it would just jiggle the fat away. (laughs) And that's as far as the science went on that. You got a little uh, stubborn belly fat, put the belt on, shake it off. If you got some thigh fat, some arm fat, whatever it is, you're just gonna stand it, lean into it, and let it just kinda... All I remember getting from messing with that is an upset stomach. But here's the thing. In society, there was an expectation that if I bought the Vitamaster and I didn't even need to put on gym clothes, I didn't even need to leave my house, 15 minutes getting my fat shook up, I would be looking like Chuck Norris or whoever. I'd be all ripped up. Expectation is a powerful motivator, am I right? That's why these things sold for uh, decades and decades, because there was this expectation that something easy, something I wanted, could be attained in a way that may or may not make sense, kind of ebbs towards the doesn't make sense part. But my expectation said, ah, don't worry about it. Who cares? I'm going to give it a try anyway. Expectation is a powerful Motivator, And so today for this Palm Sunday, what I want to do is talk about expectation, even with us as believers, because I believe Palm Sunday is an uh, absolutely beautiful picture to what happens when our expectation of who Jesus is is off by even one degree. So today, rather than give you a bunch of uh, witty one-liners, what I want to do is almost take us into a Bible study and paint the picture of what was going on this Palm Sunday almost 2,000 years ago, and look at the life of the Jews at that time who were witnessing in tangible blood and and skin real-life Jesus and what they thought he was. But then by the grace of God, it could be purified in time. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open up to Luke chapter 18. What we're going to do now, the the story of Palm Sunday is reflected in all of the Gospels. But I want to highlight um, into the book of Luke specifically for a few reasons, but I'll dabble in the others. But before we actually get to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I want to go just before that because I want to present to you, I think Jesus was setting up his triumphal entry. This wasn't just meek, lowly, Jesus being like, oh shucks guys, hi. I think he was setting up to make a statement. And I believe he does it just before he uh, walks into Jerusalem. So Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 38. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Remember that. They, they said, who is it? They said Jesus of Nazareth. That's who they told him it was. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, those who led those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you see the difference? Jesus of Nazareth, some guy, son of David, really big deal. If you were a Jew at that time, son of David was, uh, if you said it inappropriately, it was like a cuss word because you were blaspheming the Messiah. Somehow, this blind man, though being told without seeing him, being told that this was Jesus of Nazareth, in his spirit, something left and said, son of David. Not just once after he was rebuked, said, shh, be quiet, quiet. You can't say that even louder. Son of David. And Jesus stops in his tracks. So it says, uh, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I love the way he, he has it in his spirit so deep. Lord, I want to see. He replied, Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Why is this moment so important to the Palm Sunday message? Here's why. Leading up to this moment, Jesus tended to be a little more private with his proclamation of messiahship, only, to, uh, only other than his disciples. Let's think back on our New Testament history here. Jesus, he, he's fulfilling these prophetic images, and we have the luxury of knowing that by reading the book. But at that time, a lot of the Jews and a lot of the people in the area, they were like, he's just a really influential guy. He's a religious leader. That's how the Pharisees saw him. They didn't quite have it on the nose yet that he was the Messiah. And so Jesus would do miracles and the buzz was growing. But Jesus had a way of every time the crowds would come, he'd say something crazy like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part in me. Then they'd all leave. If they knew he was the messiah, they wouldn't leave. They just thought he was very influential. So there's this clear disconnect that's happening. They liked him when it was easy and convenient, and then they didn't when it wasn't. You see? You, are you tracking with me on that? So why is this moment important? This blind man who I believe under — I, I, the only way I can explain is the unction of the Holy Spirit at this point, saying, son of David. What he's saying to all of his Jewish friends around him is, Messiah, Messiah, Savior, Savior of our soul, Savior. And Jesus' ears perked up and said, yeah, he gets it. And everything stopped. Jesus then didn't tell him to be quiet. He allowed the praise to occur. What is this? Jesus says, I am him. And the world started to take notice. But again it was still not fully understood. They were excited, and it's because what they thought was Messiah, again, was just maybe one degree off. Let's keep going. This moment that we're about to step into is, again, one of Jesus's uh, fulfillments of the Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah 9.9. And it's this powerful verse talking about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, in Jewish culture at this time, it was common to study the Old Testament scriptures. And if you were to study them, you would know the the signs, the flags to kind of notice in terms of this Messiah, this person that would come. And we have the luxury again of 2,000 years of church history, tradition, scholarship, Bible study, to know how Jesus fulfilled all of those. But again, they were missing it because they had an expectation of what that fulfillment would look like. Let's think about that a little bit more. Jesus uh, fulfilling the Old Testament was more than a political move. In the Old Testament, every time Israel was set free, it was from literal chains on their wrists. Egypt into the promised land. Then from when they mess that up, they go into captivity, they're enslaved. Every time that they are set free, it's from literal physical chains on their wrists. And in that time, they would be then restored to national prominence, national um, leadership as the powerful nation in the earth because God's hand was on them. But Jesus came to establish a kingdom unlike the world had ever seen. But again, because expectation was a little bit different, these Jews who knew these scriptures didn't see Jesus for who he was yet. Let's look at it. Luke nineteen twenty nine through 42. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and enter it. You will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as, he had asked, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. I don't know if you guys have spent much time around horses and donkeys and stuff, but I have a student that rides horses and I had the distinct honor of going to her horse show and horses are scary because they're huge. I have a rule. I'm afraid of any animal bigger than me. And uh, you know, the golden rule around horses is you don't walk right behind them uh, uh, at fear of uh, being kicked. Uh, So, but this horse show I was at, it's these giant, beautiful horses that are meant to trot and jump uh, fences and do all these beautiful things. They are majestic, huge creatures, ridden by kings and warriors. But Jesus, he grabs a donkey, a colt, unridden, unused. And at that time in culture, a donkey was ridden by the slave, the king rode the horse, manicured with beautiful braids in its hair, beautiful colored garments over, draped over its back. But Jesus chose the, the donkey. Not out of weakness, but out of humility, out of this countercultural kingdom, Jesus said, I don't even want to be compared to the kings of this world. My kingdom is so different, so upside down, I won't play by the world's rules. My kingdom starts with humility. And Jesus personified that by entering into Jerusalem on what would be ridden by no more than a slave. Let's keep going. It says, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and when they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disi- disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is, the name, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is Jesus responding. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and they saw the city, he wept. Jesus wept over it. And he said, if you... Even you had only known on this day What would bring you peace But now it is hidden from your eyes What a powerful instance What a powerful story Jesus again is not coming in Aw shucks little old me He's coming in like a king And he puts it right in the face of the Pharisees And says if they don't worship Creation will worship for them That's the authority that Jesus came and established with his kingdom. Listen, at this time, you have Caesar. You have the Roman power that it looked like they were an unstoppable force. No one opposed kings at that time unless you lose your life. And then here comes Jesus on his donkey riding in, and he declares, my time now. But again— The Jews, though they are celebrating, they're probably a little confused. Like, ah, I thought this guy was going to save Israel. I thought this guy was going to fix our political problems. I thought he'd kind of like get Caesar out of the way and kind of put us back on top. I guess he can ride a donkey. Uh," Like they're trying to hold on to some hope. So they're praising him. But in the midst of that praise, tears run down Jesus' eyes. Why? Because they still don't get it. How do they not get it? This is Jesus, right? We would all love to believe as Christians the one we're singing about. How would we miss it? How could we? How could they be so foolish and not understand what was walking right in front of them, what was about to happen? We read the scriptures and it seems so clear But again, expectation is such a powerful motivator, so powerful that it can blind the eyes to even the Messiah himself. In just a moment, I want to transpose this onto our life, but I want to continue to unravel this because it's so important to understand that Jesus was not just coming to make a statement, but declare a new kingdom authority. In the other or in uh, other kings that would arrive to Jerusalem, because this is in preparation for Passover. This is—how many of you have seen the Disney movie Aladdin? Maybe you have a kid. Okay. So in this movie, you know, as they're coming to meet the princess, what do they do? They have huge uh, parties and huge parades of people coming in to try and impress the king. And so there's colors, there's music. There, in, in culture at this point, there were times as people came into Jerusalem, if you were rich, powerful, even another king, you would often, there would be parades three days long, making their way into Jerusalem. They would send trumpeteers three days ahead of uh, uh, some rich rulers' um, uh, walk into the city. They were making their presence known. It was all pomp and circumstance. It was all just luxury and showing off, flexing their, their, uh, their monetary muscles, if you will. And I love that Jesus showed himself completely different. But again, the expectation was probably that Jesus would look a little bit more like them, at least a little more authoritative. But again, Jesus does things a little different. And in his kingdom, we play by his rules. In other gospels, as it accounts the the Palm Sunday message, it says that they shouted things like Hosanna. Like we sang today, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna literally translated means save us, King, save us. In the Old Testament, you would see this word used as as a declaration of help. Please help, Hosanna. And so in this moment, they're declaring Hosanna because they're saying our King is here to make things right again. And though they were correct, they weren't correct in the way they thought they were. Do you know what I'm saying? They thought this king is going to fix all of our life's problems and Jerusalem and Israel will be back on top. Jesus in his grace and in his goodness, though he wept and though he knew that there would be trial and trouble… He would purify their Hosanna that we today could sing, Hosanna, our King has come. Our King has saved. Our King has set us free. Our Hosanna goes from please to thank you. Our Hosanna has been purified with the correct understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus was not passive. He was absolutely intentional and confrontational with his actions. He was declaring his kingship and his kingdom. So, us believers, we get to choose what we do with this information. Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem was a powerful declaration of a choice to every believer you either crown me or you kill me. There is no middle. For Jesus to say what he was saying It was so blasphemous So uh, opposed to the world at that moment That if he were to be anything but who he says he was Just get rid of him But if he actually was Like the tension that C.S. Lewis presents for us Liar, lunatic, lord He is who, exactly who he says he is And in that correct understanding He says then will you crown me? Not in arrogance, but in rightful ownership of who is king. So believers, this is what he's challenging us. In your heart, which will you choose? Because Revelation tells us that if you're hot nor cold, if you are lukewarm, you will be spit out. He's asking you to get off the fence and pick. Is our Hosanna looking for a different messiah, looking for a different fix? Or is it entirely focused on Jesus as the all-authority, all-powerful, all-good king? And if we can put our entire faith in that king, that power, that authority, then everything else, the Bible says, comes into order. That this kingdom, though is not of this earth, it is meant to impact the earth and then eternity forever after. Our kingdom is not of this world, but it should envelop this world by the believers who inhabit it. People were laying their palms and their coats before the Lord, worshiping the Jesus they wanted. Let's just think about that for a second. The Jesus they wanted. And this is what can hurt us in our own Bible study. God, I need your word to say this, so I'm going to flip through pages until it tells me what I need it to say. Uh, It's not good. It's not the way we do it, because you can get it to say anything if you're looking at it in that reverse order. Instead, it's who is Jesus, and I'm going to submit to that. What is his word saying and let it… Penetrate my heart from it to me Not me to it The order needs to get reconfigured So here's our takeaway today I have one point before we um, move uh, As we continue Praise God that we got The Jesus we needed Not the Jesus we wanted The Jesus we needed, not the Jesus we wanted. Let me elaborate on that. it's so hard because as believers, especially as American believers, we tend to put our wants, needs, and what we need from Jesus at the very forefront of our spiritual life. And we say, God, if you would just do this, if you would just give me this, if you… And we give him this list and say that when he doesn't fulfill it in the way we thought it should go… You're not who you say you are. Let's put it in context of these Jews at the time. They are watching Jesus walk in, and their expectation is getting is eroding a little bit because he's on a donkey. He's not really flashy. Um, And then a few days later, they see him turning, or uh, a day or two later, they see him flipping tables in the in the temple. And then a few days later, when he's in front of Pilate, he's beaten. Our Messiah beat up by the oppressive Roman government? What, how, how could this guy be who we thought he was going to be? The Old Testament said that he would come and reestablish the kingdom. How is he going to do that when he's in chains and he's got a crown of thorns on his head and he's bleeding and beat up? Surely the angels will come and save him, or surely uh, he'll call down heavenly fire and just fix it. How? broken hearted would those uh, Jews at that moment feel when they realized that what they wanted Jesus to be wasn't actually it when he died on the cross between two criminals. Their expectation was so broken, and their hearts were so dissatisfied with what they need, what they wanted, that upon trial, these same Jews who were singing Hosanna only a week earlier could then turn, look him right in the eye, and say, crucify him. Can you believe that? We look at this now and we're like, how? How? That doesn't make any sense. I love Jesus. I love who he is. I love Jesus. Like, he's saved my soul. Like, we have this love for him. But let's try and relate to him here for a second, because everything they thought they were getting, it wasn't exactly what they thought. Human expectation caused them to even miss the Messiah's saving act, the climax of Scripture, and they missed it because it just wasn't what they wanted. How powerful of a uh, gut check is that for us then, that when Jesus doesn't do it exactly the way we want it, is our heart so fickle that there could come a moment that we say, you know what, forget him then. I've seen so many believers do that. I saw so many young adults that when life didn't go their way, when money got tight, when relationships struggled, when uh, their advancement didn't move as quickly, they didn't get the job they wanted, they didn't get the respect and ministry that they wanted, or whatever. As soon as it didn't go the way they expected it to go, in their heart, crucify him. Give me Barabbas instead. They traded him out because they thought he wasn't who he said he was. In fact, though, Jesus, in all authority and power and will and foreknowledge and his perfection and holiness, he said, That's okay. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He never scorned, he never, never betrayed us. That from the cross, he could look at all those same people and cry out with his last breath, It is finished. It was because he knew his kingdom was being established, and it would be one that we could only understand by the Holy Spirit, not in the wisdom of the world. Amen. It doesn't make sense to the world to worship a king that doesn't walk the earth in, in physical terms, that didn't reestablish a political power, that didn't establish a kingdom as they knew it up to that point. Because it wasn't that way, Their hearts were far from God, but by His grace and by His love and by His love for you so burning deep in His heart, He said, that's okay. I can take it. And He took it to the cross, to hell, and back again, holding the keys saying, I'm in charge now. Will you surrender your life to me? Will you give your life to me? And that is the call of the King today. Our Hosanna today is a proclamation of kingdom, People saying that, Jesus, you are king, and my whole life is surrendered to your kingdom leadership. Nothing tells Satan and his followers that they have lost like the praises of God ringing in their ears. Nothing. And here's the thing. It's not just any praise. It's the praise pointed right at Jesus. If our praise is self-serving, if our praise is self-motivated, me, 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 that doesn't move heaven and earth. That doesn't shake the jail cells of hell. Because me has no power. I carry no power in my own being unless it is Jesus in me. And so then by the blood of Jesus poured out for me and the Holy Spirit filling me up, I can then walk in his power, his authority, and then I know hell has to bow its knee at the name of Jesus because Jesus took the keys and held them right in the devil's face and says, I'm in charge now. What my people lost at the garden back in Genesis 2, I now hold the keys to life and life everlasting. All I need is their heart. All I'm asking for is your heart. Jesus said, listen, I'm going to ask you to die to yourself. Your life isn't your own anymore. This is a hard pill to swallow because our life, loving our own life means to love the things that make our life easy. Convenience, uh, peace, comforts. Those are good things and the Lord will provide those in his time. But even in the times that they're not there, where does our heart go? Under whose kingship does our heart go? The Bible tells us you can't serve two masters. You get one or the other. And so today, friends, as Jesus, as we're reminded of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem and his establishment of his kingdom, he's saying, who gets to be king of your heart? You or him. Amen. You or him. I just want you to think on, it's a, it's a meditative word because it means you have to die to self. And dying to self requires an act that only God can do. No effort, no, tithe, no amount of money you give, no amount of church service you give can ever replace this death to self. And in the Bible, it tells us that then in that death to self, we are made like him. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And in that new creation work, that means we walk as co-heirs with Christ, walking in his kingdom, his power, his authority. And in his kingdom, we know that he is all authoritative. He's all powerful. He's both meek and gentle, but he's confrontational his kingdom will not share the throne with another. It won't share the the kingdom with a political system on earth. It won't share it with the desires of your own heart that are selfishly motivated. His kingdom will not share first place. Matthew 6.33 tells us to seek first his kingdom. That doesn't just mean Seek going to church all the time I want you to do that Because that's part of seeking the kingdom It's not a religious act He's saying seek first the kingdom Because it is his rule His terms His authority When we seek that first Everything else Will fall into place Romans tells us that He works out all things for good Can I tell you It's not the good by the terms we define It's the good that he defines. And that good, friends, let me tell you, that good is so much better than any good you can construct yourself. No amount of like new age manifestation, good thoughts, good vibes could ever create. You just can't. In this postmodern world where truth is completely relative, there is no boundaries, no walls, nothing, no guide rails to society. What happens? Everybody establishes their own kingdom. And Jesus walked in and said, That's just not how it works. It's my king, my kingdom, or you're out. And that sounds so hard, but it's so true. We. Give our lives to King Jesus because he is so powerful, but in that power, power he is so good. Amen. He's so faithful. He's so loving. He's so gracious that in this proclamation of his kingdom coming, he could endure the cross while we were still sinners. Amen. It's just... If we get this, no amount of me talking will ever fix this for you. It has to be a revelation from the Holy Spirit at this point. It has to be the Holy Spirit telling your heart which kingdom it belongs to. And then you making the choice based on that feeling. The worship team, you guys can come on out. Our worship attention, our faith and expectation should be submitted to this king King Jesus in that we can rest assured that's the beautiful thing about his kingdom come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? rest what other king ever said that? whatever what other king ever took its people and said I'm going to make life easier for you Every other political power has only ever migrated eventually into selfish gain, to the point of complete enslavement. And Jesus said, in fact, I'm here to set the captives free. What an upside-down kingdom and what a good king that we get to follow. So what do we do with this, this Jesus we need? And how do we set aside the Jesus we want to get the true understanding of the kingdom that is Jesus? He paved the way for us. He said, join me at the communion table. Because at the table, we remember the why. We remember the establishment of his kingdom covered in his blood and by his broken body something no other king would ever dream of but our good king Jesus did it with you in mind what a powerful thought I believe in the infinite heart capacity of Jesus that at that final breath moment he thought of you And in thinking of you, almost like a a momentary intercession, he said, Will you give me your heart? Will you give me your life? I've given you everything you need. Now, will you just give it back to me? So, what does the communion table do for us? It recalibrates us, it reorients us off of the things of this world off of the things we think we need to be more holy and righteous and back right where it belongs, eyes locked in on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This faith we're trying to build, it comes through Jesus and Jesus on his terms. And his terms are, give me your whole life. So on this Palm Sunday, We sang Hosanna, and maybe some of you walked in and your Hosanna was, God save me from my circumstance. God save me from this oppression. God save me from fill in the blank thing. And maybe it's okay, but maybe there were things in your heart that you would say that were above Jesus in that Hosanna. Here's the beautiful thing. We're going to take communion here in just a moment. I want you to prayerfully reflect On the blood and body of Jesus The completed work of Jesus And then we're going to sing Hosanna again And just like Peter After the day of Pentecost Preaches to thousands of people And it says 3,000 were saved that day I gotta imagine there were some people Who yelled crucify him Were in that same audience Who finally got it And said This is my Lord and King And I'm willing to give my whole life to it He's that good, and he gives us so many chances. So why don't we prepare to take the cup? In 1 Corinthians, it says, the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He continues on, and it says that in the same way, he also took the cup after after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? The Lord's death signifying the establishment of his reign as king. When he says it is finished, It wasn't just a get out of hell free card. It was my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our partaking in communion is saying, Jesus, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in my life, in the world around me, in everywhere that I can go and impact by your Holy Spirit. So we're going to enter into a worship song here. And we're going to sing that song Hosanna one more time. I just want to encourage you that as you participate in communion, feel free to take it at any point during the worship song as just you feel the Lord kind of impress it upon you. But do it prayerfully saying, Jesus, I'm putting you back at at the front. You are king of my heart. You are my Hosanna king who saved me, and I am full of joy. Why don't you guys worship with us this morning?